sind ja beide so voll entspannt. Also ich bin entspannt, du bist entspannt. Und, ja. Was? Was? Was ist da? Also wo, wo guckst du gerade hin? Was meinst du? Ich, ich guck dich an. Hello and welcome to In Her Lens, In Conversation, Home the Freund. My name is Nadine and I'm the producer and host of this podcast. In this special series, I'm chatting with the creative team behind the German short film Home the Freund, which is currently screening at the Tribeca Film Festival. Home the Freund was created by Silish Naidu, is written by and starring Lamin Leroy Jibba, and directed by Maisa Lihedheb. Last week, I spoke with Maisa about her work and journey with the film. And this week, I am joined by both Silish and Lamin to talk about the origins, development, and the sharing of Home the Freund with the world. So as a quick recap, Hundefreund follows the story of Malik, a black queer man in his mid-twenties, as he's on a date with a white man. Malik is forced to grapple with the racial blind spots and privileges the man he is lying next to is unwilling to acknowledge. Hundefreund explores the complexities of race in Germany. Silish Naidu is a poet, researcher, and filmmaker based in Berlin. A Reiki practitioner and tarot card reader, they believe our inner journey is an imperative part of every revolution. A former German Chancellor's Fellow, many of their projects have been featured in the New York Times, The Hindu, Die Zeit, PBS, NewsHour, among others. Lamin Leroy Jibba is an actor, filmmaker, and screenwriter. He studied at the New School University in New York and has performed at places like the Classical Theatre of Harlem and Lincoln Center. He has created various films, including the short Fever Source and the medium-length film Cloud Zero. He, too, is based in Berlin. So, in this part one of our conversation, we get to know Silish and Lamin, how they met and how they became collaborators, and we delve deep into what the scriptwriting sessions really looked like. Silish talks about the importance of the film being in German, and Lamin talks about the collaborations and interrogations he and they made throughout. Silish opens up about the funding process and the grant writing realities and the institutional barriers that exist, which fundamentally exclude. They talk about the importance of equitable, accessible applications. The duo explains their focus on really showcasing the vast BIPOC talent in Germany. But I'll just let them do the sharing. Here is part one of my conversation with Hundefreund's creator, Silish Naidu, and its star and writer, Lamin Leroy Jibba. Welcome. Thank you both so much for having this conversation. I'm really thrilled to be talking with you about your film. Um, before we get started, if both of you can introduce yourself, starting with Lamin, if you can, and just tell me your name, your pronouns, and then the last thing that you watched and the last thing that you listened to. And Silas, you have some time to think about it. And Lamin, I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> Hello, my name is Lamin Lirajiba, um, and my pronouns are he and him. And the last thing that I watched was the euphoria finale i think <laughs> yes i watched the euphoria finale and the last thing i listened to i'm doing a play right now about boy bands and it was um the love you say from the jackson five because we're doing a choreo around it yeah 
Fantastic. <laughs> uh, I'm stylish. My pronouns are they, them. The last thing I watched was uh, Suspicion, which is this Apple TV TV series that is like really just high drama and um, really shit plot. But like, I'm a sucker for thrillers that have a cliffhanger ending because I need to know what happens. So I end up just binge watching the entire thing. And my the last thing I listened to was this podcast with Lama Rod Owens, who wrote this amazing book called Love and Rage. And he speaks a lot about how uh, how we have to process our anger in order to sort of uh, fully love ourselves and other people. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you both so much. Um, we're here to talk about Hona Friends, uh, which is an incredible short film that you co-created, created together. Lamin, you star in it. Silish, would you give us some words and the listeners who obviously haven't seen the film, kind of a log line so they can follow along about what uh, this short is about? Oh, no, that's a Lamin question. I think Lamin's better at the Okay, Lamin, you take it. <laughs> um... Yeah, actually, the BFI kind of gave us a log line. Um, they didn't use the ones that we made, but I really like it. I kind of like, what was it again? I think they say like a casual hookup, which I don't like fully agree with, but I, I kind of like the overall, yeah, log line. It's, I think it's like a casual hookup takes an unexpected turn on this meditation on race, history, and love. Is it love? I think it's, I think it's love. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Okay. It's vague enough. <laughs> and it has all the things in it. But it's yeah. catchy, you know? I feel like if yeah, I read it's that, catchy. Yeah, I would be like, oh, okay, I want to check that out. Yeah. I think anything with unexpected turn is exciting. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and very we hope it's yeah. It does have an unexpected turn. Um, so <laughs> this <laughs> this short, um, you co-created it, the Salish is based on your idea, if I understand correctly. Yeah. Um, where did you two meet? Let's start a little bit with your relationship. How did you meet and um, how did this kind of creative partnership come about? Yeah, um, it was pretty It was pretty interesting because I had just met this new friend, Antoinette, and I have this I have this thing where I have love affairs with people where I intensely, like even friends, kind of like want to see them a lot when I first become friends with them. And Antoinette was one of them. I had just met her uh, a few weeks ago. And then we had, had hung out a few times after that. Um, and I he invited her to a friend's dinner party. Like I think it was a Thanksgiving dinner party or something. Um, and she's like, can I bring a friend? And I was like, of course. And in walks Lamin. And I have this thing with people is if I'm going to do something with you, I know right away. And Lamin walked in the room and I was like, he's a Taurus and we're going to work on a project together. It was like, <laughs> like, and we hit it off. And I mean, we had a good time and like Lamin got it, got along with all my friends and was like, it was good. And then it was a few weeks later, we were at a event with Maisa and I had gone to some uh, industry BPOC uh, production event. and. Um, we were sitting there and Maisa and I, are, of course, are late. And Lamin, of course, is incredibly <laughs> on time. And uh, uh, we sit across from him and I turn to Maisa and I'm like, that's the person I was talking about. That's the person we're going to work with one day. 
Um, and then I think it was like three months later, I was pitching Laman this idea and luckily he liked it. And we, this project came to be. So wonderful. I just, I'm in love with this idea as well of knowing and following that kind of gut feeling about people. So I think that that also fundamentally, I've spoken to a couple people now who've worked on, uh, on this film and that kind of connection is really kind of central to how this uh this work came about and which is really exciting and you can really feel it as well yeah because the film is the vibe and i feel like we all just went with our vibes you know like who was the right person for the roles we were recruiting for or to make the story be told yeah so will you share a little bit about the pitch to lami how did that happen how long had you had this idea and um, what was Lamin's initial reaction? Yeah, so I had the idea for about maybe eight months uh, and I had written it down in English, uh, but I had kind of thrown it into my box of ideas and never really thought about it again. Um, but the pandemic happened and it was the first lockdown and I, I didn't have a project. Like a lot of my project had got, projects had gotten canceled. Uh, things had been moved. We were all sort of dealing with the anxiety of the lock, the pandemic, the initial lockdown. And uh, I was with Maisa uh, at a friend's sort of house, and we were in the kitchen, and we were drunk. And I was pitching Maisa the story again um, with a bunch of friends, and everyone was laughing. And I look at Maisa, it's like we have to do this. We have to. We have to. We have to make it happen. Mm-hmm. and basis like yeah totally and we could just grab a camera and you can act in it and blah blah, blah. and I was like that's horrifying to me that's a <laughs> horrifying idea I do not want to be in this film and on camera um and then I went home and I actually thought about it and uh I realized there was something about the context that we were in that I knew I wanted to tell a story about what happens when you put two people in a room and they have to have a conversation that neither one of them can escape. Mm. Uh, and I really knew that I wanted to talk about what does it mean to be a black and brown body trying to find uh, intimacy and love and connection within the context of white supremacy. Um, and that also the context I was specifically in, which is being in Berlin, Germany, and me being an immigrant from America uh, to Germany. And I'm brown and I'm non-binary and there's lots of sets of intersectionality that marginalize me here. But at the same time, there is something that was happening in Berlin, in Germany, about the undercurrent of how the topics of racialization were being discussed within Germany. And it was about how do we position this conversation in a way where we are not using English or uh, uh, another language for Germany and Germans to distance themselves from this conversation? And that's why Laman came to mind, was uh, he had come to a writing group of mine that I was running a few months prior. And I so I knew he knew how to write great dialogue and script and I knew I wanted this movie to be in German because I wanted, I wanted it to be real about Germany, and I wanted to get to ride the zeitgeist, the, um, the 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 wave of I think cultural renaissance that is happening here around 
BPOC creatives really trying to challenge white supremacy. And I felt this film would come in at a crucial time to help that story be told. And so when I pitched it to Laman, it was really, um, it was really just like instinct, but at the same time, incredibly nervous because I was like, here's this amazing writer who's doing all these amazing things. And like, I don't know if he's gonna like this idea, but like, let's just see if he's into it. I don't even know what I'm doing because I've never made a movie before. And I just gave him the idea and luckily he said yes. Mm-hmm. And Lamin, can you share a little bit of your side of receiving this from Silif? Yeah, I was first like, yeah, really yeah, excited to hear about it and just, yeah, you know, just liking Silas and feeling like, okay, this will be, um, this will be a cool idea, period, just based on like conversation that we had. And um, I mean, the conversation was really, was very, um, it started very plot heavy, right? You kind of like thought, you talked through kind of like the steps of uh, what could happen in that film. And I thought that was like really interesting. But then we also talked about everything that you basically just said, right? Like what, what are the political um, ideas in this and what, in what context will this film be made? And I thought it was a great idea and I thought there was a lot of room and space to create something that is very, um, that's very special. And I think after that, there was a lot of work in finding ways to, you know, really get to the characters and kind of also getting further and further away of, of the story the specific story that you told Silas, which is also like connected to a real experience, but like what is now on screen is, 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 um, is very different, but it, um, the idea and, um, and all the ideas that Silas just shared and the, the, um, thoughts on it, I think are all, all in it. I think the, um, but I think for example, I think the plot and the unexpected turn from which we spoke about earlier, like those things are, new and but we found them together um it was really cool process of yeah coming together and kind of thinking about what we want this film to be and we ask ourselves a lot of questions of like what are we like missing what do we want to see what kind of relationships what kind of characters and you know we developed Malik and and Philip really like together talking about them and I kind of like took their took their thoughts on the characters and then I yeah, wrote the first draft, but there are small things like, like when our first meeting in my apartment, um, Stylish burned sage. No, <laughs> not sage. Palisanto. It was actually Palisanto. <laughs> yeah, no, it was Palisanto. It was Palisanto. Um, so I was like, this is amazing. I remember you saying like, um, can I burn this? And I was like, yes, of course. And then like, you burned it. And I was like, this is amazing. So then Malik is burning Palo Santo in the beginning of the film and small things like that happen. It's really wonderful to hear also this kind of cautious choice to tackle certain things and cautious choosing of people to involve. Um, What foundations did you guys place between the two of you and with Misa um, to kind of create this vibrant artistic relationship and a solid working relationship, right? Because those Um, you can be very inspired by each other, but you also have to be able to work with each other. Um, And so how, what foundations did you build as a team early on that fed the work throughout? I mean, I think, I think the script writing process really set the tone for how we wanted to frame teamwork through the entire project. And I think the, the script writing process 
unfolded quite organically in the sense of I'm a planner, especially when I have a good idea or when I want to, I'm really determined on something. So I came in swinging and I was like, okay, this is the timeline for writing the script. We're going to meet bi-weekly on these days. We're going to do it. We're going to have a script in three months. Like this is the, this is, let's get everything on the calendar. Um, and I think setting up just the initial structure of like, we are definitely going to have a bi-weekly meeting on the script. Um, catalyze, I think Maisa and also Laman in terms of how we realized in order for this project to be successful, it was going to be a constant iteration of input from all of us. And I was incredibly grateful that Laman honored the fact that this was an idea that I had, but also ran with it in sort of creating uh, this, this incredibly deep story with incredibly complex characters. And I remember in one of our script writing, first script writing sessions, uh, Laman came and we read the script together and we had given back some input and he had left and I was sitting with Maisa and I was like, uh, I just feel like, I feel like, I, I, I told her, I, like, I just, I feel like I don't know this story anymore. And Maisa was like, well, it's not your story anymore. And that's when it clicked with me that it was like, right, I have to let go of any idea of what I wanted this to be and trust the process for what it's going to become. And I think just having these interrogations of the character of the plot of uh, between the three of us and Laman being so open to that feedback really created a process that we took into the entire production process of really allowing every team member to come in and bring the full capacity of their talents mm -hmm. and to say, hey, this is what I could bring to the table. This is my interpretation of the story. And this is what we want to do. And then just allow those conversations to take place and realize that the process takes care of itself. And you just have to be open to listening and responding to each other in a way that is encouraging and kind and um, but also firm and uh, understanding. Mm -hmm. And Lamin, will you share a little bit about your screenwriting skills and how those may have changed or grown in writing this script and having two people to bounce ideas off of, to work on words with? How did that affect your process from who you were last year versus now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was that kind of like bi-weekly meetings and kind of just writing the first draft of it I got really yeah I got really excited about the idea to really share it really quickly I feel like sometimes when we write it's like very much like in isolation for a long time but I think I don't know I felt like it was a space in which we could really talk about the film in a way I don't know. I felt like I was not, I felt like we were all on the same page in a way, but then also, of course, as you said, I ran with the script and ran with the idea of the film. And I, um, the first thing to me was like thinking about the character and thinking about like Silas having had like a certain experience. And I was like, okay, how can I honor um, that experience and honor like this initial idea, but also how can we, yeah, make this film, which is fictional and which is um, has a structure and which follows certain rules and then breaks certain rules and, and all of those things. Um, so I really thought a lot about Malik and kind of his 
him and his flaws. And there was a moment in which I was like, like, this is not Silas. And actually, like, what he just said, what he said to Mike, I actually never knew that. I never knew that you said that to Mike at one point. So, um, yeah, that's really, um, yeah, that's really interesting because I, I did feel like I was like, I wanted to get it further away kind of from the initial idea and wanted to really figure out like who Malik is. And we really talked a lot about Malik and about his uh, life, how he sees himself, what his journey has been so far and all of those things and kind of really um, believing in this character as if it were a real person, like talking about him for hours. And, you know, Philip was an important part as well. And it was really important to us specifically with the story, specifically since it's two people, it is really important that both of them are complex, even though I do think that Hundefreund is Malik's story and it's his perspective that we follow and that, you know, we want to give space with this film too. Yeah, so kind of like developing developing that in col collaboration, having this constant like feedback and ideas and laughs. I think that was really good too. Like just hearing what works and what doesn't work because, you know, it is, it, it is a comedy, even though I think from the outside, it doesn't really look like that so much, but like it is also a comedy, the film. And um, it was really cool to see um, yeah, what works and what doesn't work so well. And then just to really make uh, certain changes based on that. Um, yeah, and I really trust both Silas and Misa with their, yeah, with their opinions and their aesthetics and their humor. And um, yeah, so it was really, um, yeah. I mean, I've, I've worked a lot collaboratively writing and even writing together, but this was a little bit different. And yeah, I can't even explain it. It was also a little bit like, I always say this, especially Stylish Mice and I, our qualities and our like, what we are naturally gifted at really complement each other. <laughs> like each of us is really good at something else that the other person is not um, maybe as focused on as. It was a real project that we worked together. And then we really thought about who we, do we want to invite into the space that will honor this kind of collaborative spirit in the same way. And that was in every conversation that we had with any, everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, we asked, you know, we really asked them questions about the script because everyone had read it before we met them. And we even had like a whole session before we started production and pre-production where everyone just came to Mice's place and we all just talked about the script regardless of, you know, what department they worked in and kind yeah. of how they could connect or not connect. and. And so who were who was the first person outside of the three of you who laid eyes on that? And what is that experience like to have a new work, even if it's on paper, not yet on uh, on set, not yet being shot? What is it like to then kind of give this newborn and have somebody else outside of the three of you take a look at this work? Who was that? Do you remember? And do you remember kind of the feelings that come with that? I think technically the first person to read it outside of us was the funders, right? Because mm -hmm. we oh, wow. shared it without anybody um, until we started the hiring process. Mm -hmm. And we had we had gone through we had gone through different funding applications, and we had one that involved us doing a pitch and the panel and the judges had the script and I think they were the first ones to sort of read the script outside the three of us. Uh, but I, I feel like even the, the process of planning our pitch to the panel uh, 
also informed the final product. Right. Because we were starting to feel out at that point, how are we telling this story outside the three of us? And then after we had done that pitch for funding that we didn't get, which we're grateful for because we would have made it for significantly on significantly less money mm. than we ended up getting. So the fact that we didn't get it was a huge blessing. Um, we went back and we revised this, well, Laman revised the script. And the thing with Laman and the script, like Laman was revising the script up and even through the shoot, right? Like, um, like the script was going- Right before it. rehearsal. Yeah, no. Yeah. Had, yeah. Cause we had three days of rehearsal with, um, with Till and my son. Um, and there we tried out things and um, yeah, adjusted certain things. And mm-hmm. yeah, really talked about each beat um, yeah, and I constantly like, um, yeah, recorded it in script form. So we had the most up-to-date version, yeah. But yeah, I remember, I think like a few days before shooting, I was like, hey, this is the final, final. Yeah. <laughs> final, 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 at final, final, yes. Yeah, I know, but I've gotten so many emails, like on funding applications, on bios, on everything. I get an email from mom and, okay, this is the final. Literally three minutes later, wait, no, wait, this is the final, final. No, wait, this is the final, final. And you're like... Which one, Lamin? Drag me. Yes, you're, I know. You're right. All the PDFs. <laughs> finest fine cut of the final, final yeah. draft. <laughs> yes. No, but I feel like what Lamin had talked about in terms of the three of us really relying on each other's strengths because, like, uh, we were covered. It's, it's just a way of covering each other, you know, especially working so closely in teams is Lamin had such a great attention for detail. And Maisa had such a great directorial vision and visual architecture she wanted to bring the film. And for me, I'm a big picture thinker. Like I can see the vision, I can see the end product and where it's going, but like, I can't do anything with details. You know, there are things that I'm, I'm constantly missing. And so, so to know that even when we were doing the final sound edit, I called Lama and it's like, you have to be there in the final sound edit because I need somebody who's detail oriented and like, three minutes into the final sound edit, Laman's like, what's that crackle? You know, and I listened to the <laughs> edit like 17,000 times. Like I've never heard a crackle and like, you know, so it's nice to know you also rely on team members to catch things that like you just aren't ready to catch. You can't hear it. Um, and I think that's what good teamwork is as well. 100%. And I feel so um, excited and passionate about the arts for this reason as well and about filmmaking and about theater. And maybe it also comes from theater backgrounds and, and different people who were in, um, involved in this process. Um, that it is all about who is there and how can we utilize everyone to their very best assets. And I feel like that is something that is so, so highlighted in this process. So I do want to talk about funding because I feel like that is something that um, we struggle with. And it is something that is uh, of utmost importance, right? Because money changes everything because money changes um, if something happens or doesn't happen. And also the balance between the financial and the creative and compromising and all of these things. I think it's a constant uh, battle that we have um, making a career out of the arts. So what was it like finding funding for this project? Yeah, not easy, not easy. Um, I, short films in general are very hard to fund. 
uh, they're not profitable, so nobody wants to uh, fund them. Uh, but I think particularly being migrant queer in BIPOC, we're excluded from a lot of the spaces where these funding decisions are even made, mm -hmm. uh, just by the nature that that particularly in Germany, these decisions are made in networks that are primarily primarily white, primarily cis, and primarily men. And we, we are closed out of those spaces out the gate. Mm -hmm. um, but also there are the pragmatic institutional barriers that a lot of the funding that we could apply for is only accessible to established production companies. And we were just a team of filmmakers trying to get off the ground. We're not an established production company. And even if we wanted to find a production company that would want to do it with us, it would mean stepping into a sphere of white supremacy because most of these institutions are either white owned, white run or white finance. And something that we were really clear since the beginning of this project is that we really wanted this story told by queer BIPOC creatives. And it was so important for us that every step of the way, people were involved for who were from those constituencies because it was going to inform how the, what, how the final product ended up. And nothing dicta dictates a film more than who finances it uh, or who co-finances it. Um, so that also was something that we knew we we, a challenge that we knew we had to navigate. And so we applied to a few funding agencies and experienced a few levels of rejection. And um, I think it was after one of our last no's, uh, Laman was away for a bit. And I think it was Christmas or one of New Year's or one of those prolonged breaks where people kind of turn off for a bit. And um, uh, I had just come back from somewhere, I don't remember, and Laman was like, okay, let's go for a walk. And uh, we were going for a walk, and then Laman's like, Hundefreund, like, we have to make it happen. I don't care if it's just a camera in a room the weekend, like, we just need to do it. And I remember something deep, once again, going back to intuition, deep in my intuition was like, no, like, we have something really good on our hands, and we have to wait for the right opportunity. In all truth, I felt like I was lying to Laman at the moment. Like, you know, like, <laughs> I felt like I was just trying to tell him something so like he wouldn't freak out on me to say like, no. But within a few weeks of that, this funding opportunity uh, fell in our laps uh, from the BKM. And Laman, you can say this name better than I can. It's the Bundesrecht Syrian of, what is it? Um, Bundesregierung für Medien und Kultur. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, I read through the funding application and I began my career in community organizing and I worked my way up through working for nonprofits and government institutions. And I worked as a researcher, a grant writer, like I've done a lot of work in these spheres. So I know how to look at an application like this and be like, okay, this is what we need to do to break it down. But that's not, should, that should not be an expectation of any young artist or creative to have 10 years of experience in grant writing in order to secure a grant. Because, I, because we have the skill set to look at this grant 
and know how to break it down and know how to write it and know how to do the budgets and know how to do the financing plan and know how to like network with the right institutional partners to back your application. Because we, I had that insight, we made a really strong application uh, that they, we submitted and we got. And normally these institutions don't give it to people who are not production companies or not established institutions. Uh, and so it was a lot of luck, but at the same time was also a lot of the talent that we had within our team to be able to secure a grant like this. Uh, but I also think that also address, it's because, that also addresses one of the large barriers that prevents people, particularly people of color and black people and queer people from getting this kind of funding. And once you get the funding and you have something like that thrown in your lap and there is this whole institution that is behind that, how do you start working with the actual money? Because working with money is a whole other skill and yeah. a whole other yeah. load to carry. After you celebrate, then you have the panic attack. Um, then you're like, okay. Uh, and so, and this also goes back to, I have experience in this. Like I've managed large budgets before. So I'm not afraid to look at a budget and be like, okay, this is how we can work with it. Um, but I think there's, it. these things allude to the gaps that exist between creating an equitable market and financing funding, financing and funding uh, the arts and filmmaking is that you cannot expect people who've been excluded from these worlds historically for generations to have the skill sets to navigate these institutions. And navigating the institutional barriers of submitting financing plans, submitting budget revisions, like knowing that the tax and legality implications of like uh, of the money that you're receiving and what it means and all of it being incredibly dense German that even German lawyers who I had looking at the paperwork were like, we don't understand this, you know? Um, that became a, a thing of its own. And it became in of itself an own network of community of people who are working on this project from one of my best friends, Ava, who became her bookkeeper, so we can keep track of all the receipts and the budget to friends who are lawyers who um, were able to like look through all the legal documents that Baker M was saying us. And when they didn't understand what it was saying, send it out to other people to like find out what we were doing. And this was all unpaid volunteer work in order just to get the back end of a film production. Um, up and running and going and making sure people were getting paid on time. And even more so, um, like creating, we were like even more so being, being treated like we were a formal production company when we were just a team of people trying to make a movie. Mm -hmm. And I think what funders need to realize also when creating equitable and uh, accessible funding applications and procedures is that the process has to be open to all people to apply and adaptable for all people to apply and also accessible and adaptable for people to interact with and, um, and able to like engage and use the funding in a meaningful way. And I think that's also severely lacking, not only within the German funding industry, I mean, this is, a this is everywhere. Mm -hmm. 
before we transition into talking on set work, you have this funding, you're looking for people properly compensating. What other non-negotiables were there between the stage of getting the funding, getting to, uh, to hire people? What were other non-negotiables that you had in place? I think it was mainly just, we knew the type of team that we wanted mm -hmm. because I think we've all worked in projects and in spaces that we knew, and at least for me and Laman, you can, you can speak from your perspective, but for me, I knew what it felt to be disrespected and not honored in a workspace, in a collaboration. Um, and that was just not something I wanted to bring into this project. And for me, it was really about finding the people who I think believed in that ethos as well as building a team that allowed for us to make the connections necessary so we could all just honor and respect each other. And yeah, yeah, I think that there was so much about really getting to know the people that we want to, you know, work with in those meetings. I mean, we looked at their work, everything that we could, you know, see before meeting them and then and then asking them, like, what are your thoughts on this film? Like, because they, they had they had read the script and they had read a certain, you know, mood board and seen the mood board and all of those things. And then to be like, what would you like, what are your thoughts on this film? And to actually, you know, invite them to be collaborate, collaborators. And um, yeah, I think if that is really felt and yeah, not only like something that you feel like, oh, that's kind of the mood that we want to have. Like, you know, the idea of like, oh, we're all a family or like something like that, where it's like very um, top, like surface level, but where it's actually like, oh, like you can have a note on the script. Like, I would love to hear a note on the script from, you know, the person who does lighting mm -hmm. because, you know, they have thoughts on this. And um, I think to kind of have that kind of space and, you know, Misa was very collaborative in that way too, you know, um, the set designer was collaborative in that way. I mean, remember talking to Joan and Joan asking me kind of like, no, I, no, I think Joan asked Misa about like the character, what would Malik's space look like? And then Misa was like, oh, like, um, Joan should ask me, you know? And then we were like, oh, let's all like talk about it together. And then I, I was also collaborating with set design, even though that's usually not something that like um, the screenwriter does or even like the producer, because I felt like it was, that was something that, you know, Misa could really shape the visuals or everything, but everyone really was allowed to, to speak on anything they feel like they have ideas on. And I think, if that is really felt and that that is true throughout the process, I feel like everyone brings everything they have to to the set and to every meeting. And that was really felt. I was like, I remember saying, like, there were so many times in which like we had meetings and afterwards I was like, oh my God, everyone is so down. This is so amazing. Like at first we were just like us three and then like more and more people joined the team. It's like, oh my God, they're like, I don't know, 14, 15 people now that are all really excited for this project. But that's also when we saw the scope of our team and who we were hiring. We, I remember we, I think we had just hired our last person and we were like, yes, we did it. And all three of us looked at each other and we're like, we have to do a photo shoot. Like, because everyone is <laughs> beautiful and everyone, like yeah. everyone wears their talent, you know, like on their face and their like, and what they wear and, you know, so we were like, no. And that's, we also realized the branding for the film and their Instagram page really had to showcase the amazing people behind it. And mm -hmm. that so much of what is said is that it's really hard to find BPOC creatives, mm -hmm. BPOC M creatives 
Uh, but here they are. And we found them within yeah. a few days, you know, a few weeks. Um, so, and that's also what we wanted to showcase, particularly in Germany, when these people are oftentimes very much invisibilized. Mm -hmm. I find this whole, everything you were saying before about funding and now also about selecting the, the team so revolutionary in the sense of the hierarchical system that we live in in many different companies come from this comes from this patriarchal white supremacist world and to create something where people are heard and are seen for the whole person that they are and then highlighting what they may bring and add and define themselves in another space as is really exciting and i think it yeah. is powerful I'm yeah I'm glad you're saying that because like, I think even for me in my own personal journey through this project is the dichotomy of who I was when I was navigating these white institutional spaces and working my way into these spaces, conforming myself so I can be, exist in those spaces, getting fired in these spaces when I didn't conform mm -hmm. to coming to Berlin and embracing my identity as an artist and then engaging in this collaboration that was quite opposite of every space that had ever been is exactly that. And the fact that I had this skill set because I knew how to conform and adapt and navigate in order for us to get the funding, but still allowed myself, uh, been allowed to cooperate and collaborate and create with people in a completely different way is also sort of this bridge that I was navigating through the process. There is so much good stuff to come. I don't want to leave you on a cliffhanger, but just come back this Friday for part two of this brilliant conversation with these two, I mean, truly astounding artists. I hope that you've enjoyed the episode so far and thank you so much for sharing your time with them. You can follow Silish on Instagram at Silish underscore N and Lamin at Lamin Leroy. Of course, you can also follow the podcast for updates at In Her Lens Podcast. See you on Friday for part two and then next Wednesday with the film's set designer, Joan. Grateful that you were here. Wishing you the best rest of your day. Cheers. Bye.